when uh, Brother Kelby and I discussed about going through a summer in Psalms, there was one psalm I had in mind that I wanted to preach, and I think I even told him uh, that this was one of my favorite psalms, and it really is probably my favorite. Um, psalm 51. Um, the main reason that this is one of my favorite psalms is that in this psalm we see such a clear picture of the gospel. Now, before we dive into it, as you're turning there, I want to give a quick background on this psalm and where this psalm actually comes from, what the, what the uh, situation was that brought us to this psalm being written. Um, David was king over Israel. He... Uh, was a fierce fighter, a, a good warrior. During one battle that he should have been leading his army, he stayed home. And uh, from all accounts, it looks as if he was just kind of laying around the house, and he decided to go on the roof house, roof, rooftop at about the time that women start taking baths on the rooftop. And he looked over and he saw Bathsheba taking a bath. And he desired Bathsheba. So he had Bathsheba brought to him. Her husband was Uriah the Hittite. And he was away fighting when David wasn't. And David had his way with Bathsheba. And she became pregnant. And lo and behold, he found out about it. So he brought Uriah the Hittite back. From battle for a little R&R, &R, he wanted him to go home to his wife and them do what husbands and wives do so that he could say that it was Uriah's baby and not his. But Uriah was a very honorable man and he said, I'm not going to go home when there's so many men out in the field waiting to battle and dying. I'm not going to go. So he went and he slept outside. And he wouldn't go in. So David came up with another plan. David's plan was to send a note saying, Send Uriah to the front and pull away. And that's what his generals did. And Uriah the Hittite was killed. So David took Bathsheba and married her. Made her another wife. Now, we don't see any remorse in the situation until Nathan shows up. Nathan is the prophet of God. He's the preacher. And I want to read to you their interaction as they kind of dig into it in a way that Nathan uses a lot of sense with. In 2 Samuel 12, I'm going to read verses 1 through 7 real quick. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. He used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, 
and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man. He was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb, prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, because he has no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. He confronted David with his sin. And what was David's reaction? Verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has also put away your sin, and you shall not die. David was repentant, and David was forgiven. But notice his words. I have sinned against the Lord. Psalm 51 was born from this time in David's life. David sinned greatly, and he had to face it head on. And Junior read our text this morning, but I think it bears reading again. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Psalm 51, verse 1. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold with it. Hold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken heart, a broken spirit, and a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good design in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. I pray that by the time we finish, we will see Christ more clearly. We will love God more dearly and have an even better 
understanding of the gospel. This beautiful psalm holds so much importance for us, and I pray that it touches all of our hearts this morning. I want to begin with a, a wonderful quote from Thomas Chalmers. He's a Puritan, and it, it's almost a prayer, really. He said, My God, whether recent or not, give me to feel the enormity of my manifold offenses, and rumor not against me the sins of my youth. What a great prayer for us. It helps us to direct our thoughts to what this psalm has to offer for us in light of Christ. We all know that God's word is about one thing. It points us to Christ, right? We see Christ in all of Scripture. In this psalm, what we see is a perfect picture of the gospel, the one true gospel, the gospel we understand. A, God we can, a gospel we can describe in four words. God, man, Christ, response. God, man, Christ, response. The psalm will also give us four important points that help us to, to move through that gospel in those four points of the gospel. I want to start with our first point, and that is the sinfulness of sin. Verse 3 through 5 says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Sir Richard Baker, he said it best when he said, A sin of infirmity may admit apology. A sin of ignorance may find out excuse. But a sin of defiance can find no defense. This is very well said. If we're honest, sin is defiant. All sin is is defiant. It is defiance against a holy God. Sin is against God alone. Now, even though in this situation we look at David and what David did, David sinned against Bathsheba, right? David sinned against his wives, right? He committed adultery. And David also sinned against Uriah the Hittite. He took from him his wife and took from him his life. He understood, though, even though he had sinned against those people, that it was God that he was truly sinning against. And thus, we see the first part of the gospel on display. God. God is the creator of all. God is holy. God is above all. He is completely other than any other thing we see. He is the God of the universe. The God of all creation. And guess what? He made the rules. And our sin is cosmic treason 
against him. Verse 6 describes this great God. It says, Behold, you delight in the truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. He is a God of perfect truth. No truth exists outside of God. In verse 5, though, David diagnoses the issue with all of us. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And this is the man portion of the gospel. Because of Adam's fall, we are all born in sin. Adam was told by God when God created the garden and said, you can eat of everything in the garden except that one tree. Don't eat that one. And what did he do? He ate. We must understand this in order to see our great need for a Savior. We must see the terrible sinfulness of, of, of our sin. It's not just a mistake or failure, no matter what anybody tries to tell you. It's not a hiccup in your spiritual walk, or it's not a, just a, a, a bad turn in life. It's sin. It's cosmic treason and defiance against a holy God. And to continue in it will lead to torment forever in hell, receiving the deserved wrath from a holy God. That's where it leads. That's the, the honest truth. It may seem harsh in our world today to say those things. But I'll say this. I've given this example before. If I saw anybody running headlong, head down, fast as they could, towards a huge hole in the ground that was full of fire and lava, I would stop them in any way I could, and it, most of the time it probably wouldn't be nice. God loves us. Jesus loves us. 100% He does. But somebody running headlong into a pit of fire, Jesus loves you, may not stop them. They need to hear the truth of the sinfulness of their sin. And we need to hear it for ourselves again. I would tackle somebody headed towards a fire like that, wouldn't you? But here's the thing. Understanding the sinfulness of our sin can bring us to a wonderful place. And that's what part two is. The joyfulness of repentance. The joyfulness of repentance. I'll start with verses one and two. It says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. That was our assurance of pardon this morning, right? Now, what we see here in these verses, we don't see here David just being upset because he's got some consequences of sin that he's got to deal with. We know that that is not really truly conviction. That's just guilt, maybe, or, or frustration that I've got to deal with these things because I sinned. No, what we see is David hates sin. He begins to hate it. 
He wants it completely blotted out. He wants it washed away, gone. I love what Spurgeon said. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, in case you wonder where my son's name comes from. When we hate what the Lord hates, he will soon make an end of it to our joy and peace. Before Christ, if we're honest, we loved our sin. And we were good at it. God had to bring us to a point of hating it. Seeing the sinfulness of it. The filth in it. We have to come to a place of repentance. And only one way to get to that place of repentance. And that is God bringing us there. And we must repent and trust in Christ. And God gives us a brand new heart that hates sin. But we have to run to Christ who is our help. Verse 7 and 8 says, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. You see, David's going even farther here than just repenting and asking God to blot it out and cleanse it. He is going into every piece of a repentance that he needs to see in his own life. Purge me, wash me, let me. Purge me, he says, or purify me with hyssop. Now this hyssop was used in ceremonies to, to clean certain things. So this is a picture of a legal ceremony for him. A spiritual cleansing from God. Our spiritual cleansing comes through faith in Christ alone. That's the legal ceremony because Christ took it upon himself on the cross. Wash me, he says. David longs to be clean. It's as if the, the sin is sticking to him like a stain. And he wants to be clean of it. What can wash away our sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. David understands that it's only God who can make him clean. He can make all the restoration in the world. But only God could make him clean. And he's trusting in the only one who can to cleanse him from his sin. Then he says, let me. Now, let me is also translated make me. David understands that just to be clean is not enough. He wants to hear Joy and gladness available only through God. He needs to be made new. God has disciplined him. He says, fix these bones you broke. God has disciplined him as he should have been, and he knows it. But he joyfully desires God to just remake him. And that brings to mind, to me, another wonderful verse in Scripture. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. 
The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. He needs to be made brand new. And he knows this. And next, through this wonderful psalm, we see a type and a picture of the third part of the gospel on clear display. The third part of the gospel is Christ. And without the third part of the gospel, there is no gospel. And thirdly, we see in this psalm the awesomeness of salvation. The awesomeness of salvation. Verses 9 through 12 say, Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Now, I know in modern culture that we see uh, salvation talked about in, in, in Christian circles, it's isolated to a specific day, right, and a specific prayer. On such and such day, I was saved. I prayed to God to save me, and He saved me that day. And we see salvation isolated to that specific day. But I want to kind of buck against that, because contrary to that thought, salvation is not a one-day event when I pray a prayer. Salvation is a work that God is doing in me throughout my entire life. From the call of God to my heart and the change, the justification through Christ, the Holy Spirit in me, sanctifying me, sanctification happening, to the moment when I'm either leaving the earth or I'm called out of the grave and I'm glorified before Him. God is in the business of my salvation. Salvation is that work. And God does the complete work in us. Listen to David's language here about salvation. He says, blot out my iniquities. Blot out my iniquities. David desires his sins to go away forever. He doesn't want them anywhere near him. Thanks be to God that in Christ, that is available to me and to you if we are in him. Isaiah 43, 25 says, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. You know who's speaking there? God himself, the Almighty. What a wonderful joy that our iniquities have been blotted out by Jesus Christ. He says, create in me a clean heart. To me, that is reminiscent of one thing, a picture that changed my mind about what salvation truly is. God isn't cleaning up something old. It's reminiscent of the picture that we see in Scripture of what happens to us. When God takes out that dead, dirty heart of stone and he puts in a brand new heart of flesh, he has created in us a clean heart if we are in him. 
He says, renew a steadfast spirit within me. David needs strength from God to stand, and he knows this. That staying power comes from God alone. Our staying power as Christians, hear me, is not because you work good enough to do it. It is from God himself, his Holy Spirit, preserving his saints until that day. That's where it comes from. He says, do not cast me away from your presence. The promise that we have in Christ is very simple. He says, I will never leave you or forsake you. That's a promise that no other religion can, can, can attest to. He says, I will never leave you or forsake you. That promise is the great hope that we have every moment of every day. And we must lean upon the Savior who says, no one's going to pluck you out of my Father's hand. He says, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Now this is the key to our salvation. The promised Holy Spirit. Jesus talked about it in John. We preached through it, right? He says, it's to your advantage that I go, because if I go, I will send the Holy Spirit, and He will be with you, and He will be in you. He lives in us. He's sanctifying us. He's molding us into the image of Christ. And David, what's so crazy about it is David couldn't even experience that because Christ had not come yet. Yet he knows the essentialness of God's Spirit being with him. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. The joy, we can experience such wonderful joys in this life. Many of us have experienced it very recently, right? When a child's born in our house, it's such a wonderful joy that the sleepless nights don't matter, do they? Because of the wonderful joy of that child. But the greatest joy that we can experience on this earth is being in Christ. Because He is our joy. He is our great and exceeding joy. Uphold a willing spirit in me. God is our sustainer. By what means does God sustain us? Brother Kelby talked about it this morning in the kids' sermon. He, uh, he sustains us with Scripture, with prayer, with church, with these things, these disciplines. And as we grow, we see even more happening in those disciplines to grow us. See, Christ is our salvation. And it's in His work that we actually have access to these great gifts. And throughout all of this, all of the gospel, there is a call to us for response. And we see a proper response to God through Christ. How should we respond to such a great salvation? So in point four, we're going to have some application. How do God's people respond to such a great salvation? The first 
We share the gospel with others. Verse 13. David said, if you'll save me, if you'll cleanse me, if you're going to do all these things, he says, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Sinners come to Christ through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. David says, because of what you've done for me, I will teach others. And we as Christians, we share the gospel. Another way that we respond to God's great salvation. We did some of that this morning. We sing of his righteousness. Verse 14 says, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. In our church, we lift up songs that sing of God's holiness, his goodness, his righteousness, his truth. That's why Brother Kelby and I are so very careful about what songs we sing here. We don't sing us-centered songs. We sing Christ-centered songs here. Why? Because we're going to sing of his righteousness because of what he has done in us and for us. Next, we declare his praise. According to verse 15, it says, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. We joyfully speak of God everywhere. Home, work, church, we speak joyfully of our God and what he has done and who he is. We tell our kids about this God, who exactly he is. Next, we depend completely on Christ. Verse 16 and 17 says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. We are completely incapable of doing enough on our own to be good enough. 100%. We know this, right? Christ has done the work. We can't work our way into salvation. You'll never be a good enough person for heaven. There's only been one good. I know so many people say, why do bad things happen to good people? I agree with Charles Spurgeon. There's only been one good person, and they killed him. We're not going to work our way into salvation. The work that we do as, as members of his church, of, of part of his elect, those who he's called unto himself, the holy living that we do, the way we live differently, helping others when we can, raising our families in Christ. This all comes through Christ's work. And it doesn't replace it. Christ did the work, and he has saved us, and now he has prepared those good works for us beforehand, right? And that's where the work comes from. Lastly, and I think this one's important, we need to understand that because we are His, we have His favor. Verse 18 and 19, it says, Do good to Zion and your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. 
Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. These verses talk of Zion. Zion is synonymous with God's chosen people. We're his elect if we're in Christ. He favors his elect because of who he is and his sovereign choice. Not anything good in us. He chooses. And he preserves us. And he keeps us. And we, as his people who are favored by him, who are loved by God so much, what's the work we should do? We should do the greatest work of our life and we should rest in his favor. Rest in it. Knowing that he is good and he has done the work for us. And that he's not going to throw us away. As we leave, I want, to, I want to leave you with something here. I've talked a lot about the gospel. And I pray that we've all seen the gospel work in our lives. And we've all run to Christ and, and repented and trusted in him. And we have a brand new heart. But I want you to understand something. Brother Kelby and I preach one gospel. The only one. There is not multiple gospels. There is one gospel. I heard a, actually I heard a, a analogy just this morning that I thought was so powerful I wanted to share it with you. Say you had a child. And you raised that child picking strawberries. And the child could pick the strawberry off the vine and eat it and the child loved these strawberries and you just always were picking strawberries you're making jam you're doing all this stuff with these strawberries your child grows up loving those strawberries now imagine you've got another child and this child you don't take to the strawberry field this child you take to sonic and the only taste of strawberry they ever get is a strawberry slushy which has for the most part, nothing to do with strawberries, right? It's high fructose corn syrup, some red number 40, right, babe? That we, we, don't, we don't like red 40 in our house. But it's, it's, it's false, right? And it's super sweet. And that child, the only taste of strawberry they ever have is a slushy. And they just happen to be walking through a strawberry field. And they think, hey, those are strawberries. I like strawberry. And they take that strawberry. Do you think they're going to like the taste that they get out of that strawberry? No. Because that's not ultra super sweet and full of red 40. It's going to take that child having to change their taste. But you know what most of the time is going to happen? They're just going to say, I don't like strawberries. I just like the flavor. Romans 1, 16 and 17 says... For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. We have one gospel, and we are required to preach that one gospel. That gospel is this, that God was the creator of the universe from the beginning. He made all things from nothing. He made a garden and he made a man and a woman. 
And he put them in the garden. He said, you can eat of all the fruit, but don't eat the fruit off of that tree. And they ate the fruit. And in eating that fruit, they sinned against a holy God. And even in their sin, God had mercy and slaughtered an animal so they'd be clothed. And he said that the seed of the woman would one day crush the head of the enemy. But if we see God as holy and we see sin as not holy and as awful and as sinful, we understand that we are in trouble without help. And then, in the fullness of time, a babe was born of a virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit, and his name was Jesus. He lived a sinless, perfect life. He was crucified, and as he was crucified, he took all of our sin, all of our shame, all of our guilt, and all these awful things upon himself, and he bore the full wrath of God in punishment for our sin, and he died. And he rose again three days later to prove that the sacrifice was good enough. And because of that, now I, sinful as I am, can receive mercy from God, that the wrath that I deserve for my sin has now been poured out on Jesus, and I get grace. My sinful Awfulness was put upon him, and he has clothed me in a robe of righteousness. And that comes through one thing, through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ alone. He is the only way to heaven. It can be hard for people to hear that. But that, my friends, is the gospel. And that's the gospel that will be preached here. And that's the gospel that we need to tell our kids about. So one day they're not walking through a strawberry field and they don't taste, this doesn't taste as sweet. Our kids need to hear the true gospel, not watered down. This world is full of people who have heard a watered down gospel. The gospel is one thing. Jesus Christ died for sinners and I'm one of them and because of his great mercy, I am now saved in him. And one day it'll be complete. It's not my testimony. It's not everything's good, everything's nice. It's not God sure loves you. He's got a wonderful plan for your life. He does. He does love us, and he has a wonderful plan for our lives. But God's wonderful plan for Stephen was to be stoned to death. God's wonderful plan for Paul was for him to be carried in chains about, wrecking a ship every time he got on one, and be carried and killed for the gospel. The gospel is Jesus Christ died for sinners. And I'm the chief of sinners. And he died for me. And he has saved me and given me a brand new heart. Made me clean. Tell your friends. Tell your kids. Tell your family. Tell them about the gospel. Let's pray.